Hello, it's Trevor here from WN Movie Talk Podcast, formerly known as We Need to Talk About Movies Podcast, and you're listening to another episode of the films I own that I haven't watched yet. In case you're new to the channel, basically I own quite a lot of films. I buy them basically at a quicker rate than I can ever get round to watching them. So I've written all their titles down, I've stuck them in a little pot, which I draw in a, a title out at random, and then watch that film and discuss. However, before I begin the episode, I would like to just apologise that there is some issue with my microphone. So throughout the, the episode, there is some slight annoying noise. I apologise. Please don't let that put you off. I'll sort it out for next week. So here we go again for another round of the films I own that I haven't watched yet. Without further ado, I am going to pick one out of my pot and have a look. So here we go. Shuffling my pot of names. And there, I've got one here. And it is... Right, you might not believe that I haven't seen this film. It's one of those classics that everyone's seen, except for me. I have seen bits of it. I do remember seeing bits of it, but it wasn't nothing that I really bought to as a child or as a youngster. It wasn't my type of film, but it is Mad Max. Mel Gibson, Australian films, early Mel Gibson film. The original Mad Max. Okay, so I do remember seeing bits of it. Obviously, the Mad Max trilogy star Mel Gibson, and they are written and directed by George Miller. So, and I think they're Australian films, aren't they? I'm sure the first one is anyway. I know a bit about them. I know it's like a post apocalyptic world, and he's like a cop, a sort of a vigilante cop or something. You know, I know the gist of it, but I don't, yeah, I don't think I've ever watched them all the way through. I certainly haven't watched two or three Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome Thunderdome with uh, Tina Turner in it, which sounds like it should be rubbish, but I don't know enough about them. So the first one, the back of the box says Mad Max. Mel Gibson portrays Max Rokansky. The fearless, leather-suited cop waging war with kill-crazy bikers who targeted his family. In the end, a lone man travels a ribbon of highway now free of the unroadworthy. The first of Gibson's Mad Max collaborations with filmmaker George Miller gave notice that he was a name to reckon with. So, I'm going to watch Mad Max now, and then I will come back and discuss my thoughts afterwards. So, wish me luck. Okay, so I've watched the first Mad Max. Um, yeah, I'd sort of seen bits of that. I couldn't remember it very clearly. I remembered certain bits. I thought that he lost his... Fa- spoiler alert. I thought that he lost his family earlier on in the film, for some reason. I remember Goose hopping around uh, with his leg and crutches. I remember boy and the girl from the town getting their car chased and smashed up. When I was younger, I wasn't really into cars and I wasn't really into action films like that, you know, either, to be honest. And I mean, this is a low budget, relatively low budget Australian film. And it was in the Guinness Book of Records for some time for being the most profitable film ever made. I I just Googled this as I was 
sort of watching the film, I was Googling bits. So it actually made 100 million, which is a massive, that was worldwide, but that's a massive profit. And it made me think when I'm watching it, what was the appeal with this film? Is it just the motorheads, you know, like this? Was it to do with the video release as well? Videos becoming a, a big thing? Or was that 100 million sort of all to do with the cinema release? I don't know. But although I see, you know, the, the George Miller's direction is quite sort of adventurous. Some of the stunts, some of the car chases and the car crashes and that are very ambitious. And, yeah, you see these cars are travelling breakneck speeds and, you know, they're actually bumper to bumper and things like that. And, yeah, I can appreciate this, the craft that's gone in to make these films and they are quite effective just not, not really my cup of tea but you know mel gibson he's good at playing that sort of crazed manic character i suppose max is like you know an earlier version of his character in the lethal weapon films you know he's the same sort of thing isn't he a broken man a, a loose barrel i mean the film does seem dated in a lot of ways the music although effective sometimes sometimes it's too much very loud the romantic score really made it seem quite tacky there was some choppy editing some of the footage was sped up and it looked awful for being so sped up Uh, a lot of the audio dubbing it just didn't sound like it was part of the same image you know part of the, the film it felt like it was dubbed over the top. And the story is sort of nothing nothing special, is it? But I suppose if you're into that sort of thing, it's got everything you want. It's got the violence, the high-octane thrills of the chase. It's got the action, the explosions. It's got guns. It's got... It's, it's basically, it's like a modern-day Western, isn't it? It's very much a sort of a... He's like, uh, you know, the man with no name and the motorbikers, the motorbike gang with Toe Cutter and Bubba are very much like the the wild posse that ride into town. They're very theatrical. There's a lot of theatrical characters in this and over-the-top performances. And, I mean, it starts straight away at the beginning with the, the big car chase where the night crawler or night rider is driving his car and he's, like, completely insane in the in the car and I didn't quite get what happened when he was playing chicken with Mad Max and then you know Mad Max swerved out of his way but then he, he's all of a sudden the night night rider is crying and I don't quite get what was going there there's a few bits where I'm like mm, yeah I don't know <laughs> um but the the you know the motorbike crew they was really menacing George Miller really successfully created a film that was it's uncomfortable watching you know and I always found it quite uncomfortable when I was younger and I I watched a lot of sort of violent films as a kid you know I was sort of raised watching films like not raised not like my mum forced me to watch them or anything I used to sneak videos behind my parents back you know um from my brother's rooms and stuff and we used to watch aliens and robocop the terminator films but yeah mad max was always one that i didn't 
it really unnerved me and i think it's the gang they're just so they're so crazy and anarchic and like you know they're dancing around and stuff and just doing weird things that don't make sense and it just gives you that real sense of like oh anything could happen and anything does you know that scene where they're tormenting the town and they drag that that boy up the street on the back of the bike yeah they were very very good very crazed a real menace and yeah really achieved that sense but then a lot of the police were sort of manic and anarchic as well you know the what do they call them the mfp or so um the traffic cops and were they all talking in like american accents were they trying to hide their australian accents i'm listening i'm thinking are they australian or american it's one of the things i sort of googled actually because i was like i'm sure this was australian film um it was but yeah i'm sure a lot of it they're trying to talk american uh toe cutter the main bad guy i thought was really good he'd like hiss and stuff like that i like just yeah i I like a character that's disturbing and dysfunctional in a sense that you don't know what's next you don't know how their brain is working um he seems calculating but at the same time just he could snap at any time sort of like uh dennis hopper in blue velvet just the depths of darkness that they're exploring with characters like this it's really great but at the same time as i say yeah it's just ugh, it's wrong it's weird but i did feel that it was like quite a long opening the middle act really spread out quite you know when he's given up the police work after goose's accident and um max and his wife sort of run away from it all and i was surprised actually how short the final act was where he goes around getting his vengeance um before you know it the film was over and i was like yeah it just seemed like the last the final act of the film was like 10 minutes long yeah it didn't i don't know it was good and i like the ending where he's uh you know handcuffs the bloke to the car young johnny and uh the car's about to set fire and he gives him the saw i thought it was a great ending uh, I loved the, the editing and during the, the chase sequences and some of the shots, but I, I especially love the really low angle shots, you know, fixed on the road with wide, wide lens. So the car really looked like it was speeding towards the camera without having to speed the shot up as well. And then it would just cut to the, like the same, sh- same shot, the opposite shot of the car speeding away. Those shots worked really well. But, yeah, there were some great shots in the end sequence where Max is driving and the camera's sort of square on him and it keeps fading in and out, dissolving in and out, and you see him and the road and he's he's not human anymore. He's He's gone from being a, a, a normal guy to just this angry being, hell-bent now on vengeance. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's It's quite good. I quite look forward to watch the others. It'd be quite interesting to see where the story goes, what you know, how the character and the film evolves, and then yeah, also what how Tom Hardy acts as Mad Max in the later films, um, which again I think was still written by George Miller, wasn't it? Uh, I'll find out as I get there if I'm wrong or not. But yeah, so that was Mad Max One. <laughs> 
Okay, me again. I am going to pick another film that I own that I haven't watched yet. Okay? So when you're ready, we'll do this. Having a ruffle, having a rummage. Got one. So my box of titles and the film I've picked is 21. 21. Two and one. 21. 21. What's this then? What's this? Right. Should be up the T's. Free ten to Uma. 21. Okay. Right. Well, instantly I'm looking at this title and I'm thinking this looks very much like Lucky Number Seven. The cover is two cards, playing cards, a jack with Lawrence Fishburne on it. And the Ace of Hearts with Kevin Spacey on there. And it stars Jim Sturgis, Kate Bosworth, Lawrence Fishburne, Kevin Spacey. Fast-paced, tense and witty from start to finish, said Heat Magazine. When you change the rules, you change the game. So inspired by the true story of MIT students who mastered the art of card counting and took Vegas casinos for millions in winnings. Looking for a way to pay their tuition, Ben Campbell, Jim Sturgis, finds himself quietly recruited by MIT's most gifted students in a daring plot to break Vegas. With the help of a brilliant statistics professor, Kevin Spacey, and armed with fake IDs, intelligence, and a complicated system of counting cards, Ben and his friends succeed in breaking the impenetrable casinos. Now, his challenge is keeping the numbers straight and staying one step ahead of the casinos before it all spirals out of control. Okay, so it looks very similar in style to Lucky Number 11. I don't know why, it's just a similar sort of case. But we're going to have a look at this, and I will come back to you after this, and we will discuss what I thought of 21. Cheese! Okay then, that was 21. Just watched. Um, from 2008, it was quite a predictable film, and it fell foul of the sort of... the noughties style of filmmaking digital effects and close-ups whooshing sounds when the camera's flipping from one shot to the other and lots of thunderous bass and high contrast saturated digital cinematography quite a lot of gimmicky shots slow motion loud rumbling and what have you you know a bit i said it it was around the same sort of time as Lucky Number Seven, and it sort of falls foul of a lot of the the same modern gimmicks, which I, you know, gimmicky filmmaking. But I did enjoy this more than Lucky Number Seven. It, you know, it was predictable. You could literally, you know, set your watch by what was going to happen and when it was going to happen. You could see it all coming. So, if, if anyway, it follows the story of MIT genius student Ben Campbell, who's trying to get a Harvard scholarship, but he's not going to get it, and he needs $300,000. So just by chance, his sort of fun-loving maths teacher or, you know, one of his lecturers, Kevin Spacey, Mickey, is running this card counting scam and 
offers Ben into it. Ben's like a little bit shy. He's a sort of a timid, nice little nerd, you know. He's with his nerdy mates and he's making these robots, you know. he's They're making a self-driving robot car thing. And, uh, you know, he's got his head screwed on. He knows what he wants. And then this turns up on his plate and he can't turn it down. You know, the Kevin Spacey character at the beginning, he's, he's the good guy. He's roping him in and you feel... You know, he's got a lot of respect for Ben and it's a bit like the sort of Robin Williams character in Goodwill Hunting, you know. Maths is cool. They're trying to make maths seem cool and no cooler way than card counting. Um so then he meets in with a group and obviously there's the girl Jill, um Kate Bosworth, who Ben is in love with. Ben played by Jim Sturgis. And when Ben turns down the role she is sent out to get him which sort of goes against what mickey saw because mickey saw in ben he was this sensible guy who doesn't let emotion sort of rule his judgment yet you know he completely crumbles when kate bosworth comes over to hoodwink him into joining the group uh, and then he joins the group and then there's like the, the the guy that he's sort of ousting from the group who used to be the big the big hitter, whatever they call it. And you can see he's cocky and arrogant and you can see they're going to fall out. Um, and it's such, like I say, it's all obvious what's going to happen. But at the same time, I did quite enjoy it. It was gimmicky, but it wasn't as gimmicky as Lucky Number 11. I enjoyed this much more than that. I know they shouldn't be compared. They're not of the same ilk, really. They were the same time. But I thought this was more realistic than that. And, it, you know, amongst the gimmicky bits, there it was a lot more sort of deliberation in the shots and things. And the, the dialogue was a bit more realistic. It was lucky number seven was just full of shitty, like trying to too hard to sound cool and what have you, you know. But, yeah, I thought this was all right. I quite enjoyed uh, Jim Sturgis in the main role of Ben. You know, he's a bit like Clark Kent Superman, where he's... He's nerdy and timid back in Boston and then in Vegas. He's cool and confident. But as I said, you could see what motions he was going to go through. His character arc was going to be. He's going, uh, he's going to lose himself in this venture. He says he's going to get the 300,000. You could see that he's not going to be able to stop. It's going to change his personality. He's going to lose his friends. He's going to make some silly mistakes. He's got to split the team up. Um, and that's like the bit that annoying, really, because... They all know the risks and Mickey's sort of pulled them all in and Mickey's take. He's the mastermind of the card counting business, but he lets them take the risks and get out there. Um, but they're all happy to do it until Ben goes out and just gets too cocky and fucks up. And then when Kevin Spacey's having a go at him saying, you know, you've done this, you were gambling, you wasn't counting, you were gambling, which he was, you know, and rather than admit, he's like, oh, yeah, why aren't you doing it? Uh. And then uh, he causes this big upset, tears the group apart. It's all Ben's fault at the end of the day. Um, and they all turn on Kevin Spacey and then set him up. And I just think, well, no, that was you really being so, so cocky and arrogant um also like the different signals they do like running their hair through when it's like get away get out of here and stuff they're all subtle except for the oh come on my table it's like crossing your arms behind the chair and just every time they do it, it looks really obvious it's like i'm cringing sort of watching it it just another bit there's loads of bits in it it just don't make sense it's a bit silly but it 
it's good fun. It's a good fun story. Um, it's like when they go into the Chinese gambling den and he walks in and he instantly sees Jill and like waves her when they're all supposed to be individual, you know, pretending they don't know each other. And you're just like, oh, God. And then he goes over and they, he's winning. And then they put the bag over his head and they take him out. And they're like, what was the count? What was the count? And he's like, oh, plus 13 or whatever it was. And then you hear them all cheer. Hey, you didn't lose the count under pressure. And they take the bag off his head and it's Kevin Spacey and all his friends. And he's like, oh, you guys. But surely if he was caught, they wouldn't want him to admit what he was doing. Because that could prove that he's like, weak it's a sign of weakness isn't it and he's going to crumble that's what i don't get as well i think they'd be like no if someone puts a bag over your head and beats you up you you keep your mouth stum you know keep quiet that's what oh, i don't know so you got the lawrence fishburne character and his storyline as well and he's the eye in the sky and him and his cohorts are losing their job to sort of face facial recognition technology that all the Vegas casinos are buying up and he's determined to catch these punks, you know. Um, Lawrence Fishburne's all right and he does he does what you hire him for. Um, but it's amazing, isn't it, how this was only like 2008, so was, I suppose nearly 15 years ago, actually. So it's frightening how quick uh, time flies, but... When you see uh, all the mates rating the woman, the women in the bar, and they're like, "She's a seven point five three seven and he said, "Oh, I reckon she's an eight. Well, I was just rounding up, and uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that's frowned upon now. But the weirdest part of that scene is where he goes over to buy Kate Bosworth a drink when she's at the bar, and she's like surrounded by like eight lecherous men all around her and she's got the biggest grin on her face and you're just like yeah she'd be like fuck off you lot what are you doing here you know why would she be at that bar if all their men on her own it's just just a weird choice of shots um and it's like yeah why do they leave it all soaps you hear at the beginning oh we always disguise ourselves kevin spacey says but never once through that whole thing did they wear disguises and they're going in all these casinos and they're always sat at the same table with each other and you think surely like wigs and things would be essential to their plot there's no reason for him to have been spotted by lawrence fishburne so early on you know it seemed a bit foolhardy and complacent that you know to start with but you know, the film, like I say, it's, it's no Citizen Kane. It was quite good fun. It's, it's got a lot of energy, really good soundtrack in there. Wouldn't be one I'd rush out to watch again, but it was worth watching if it, if it was, if there was nothing to do, you know, and this, this came on the telly that night, I'd probably watch it again, but I don't think I'd go out of my way to choose to watch it. But yeah, definitely. I've seen worse. And surprising, actually, this got worse. Uh, I looked on, on IMDb. And this was rated a lot lower than Lucky Number 11, whereas I really didn't really enjoy that Lucky Number 11. It's too gimmicky. But maybe that's what people like, the gimmicks, you know, makes them feel like it's a modern film they're watching, I suppose. Whereas I like a film that tells a story and <sighs> there you go. It's all preference, isn't it? But there you go. That was uh, 21. So another film I own that I haven't watched yet. Watched. Done. <laughs> hello hello me again and back again with my little plastic pot of hundreds of bits of paper um on each bit of paper 
is a different film that I've written down that I own that I haven't watched yet. So I'm in the pot and we're going to choose one of the selection. Oh, I love this. This is my favourite part of this is choosing them. Usually by the time I've opened it, it's like, oh, I don't really want to watch that. <laughs> like this. What's this going to be? Is it going to be something good? Something I'm like, oh, I want to watch that. Oh, The Torment. Sounds like a horror film. Let's see if I can find it. I haven't watched a horror for a long time, actually, so this could be good. Is it on the horror section? Has it been in my... Sh- if it's in my main shelves, it's, it means it's been in this shelf for a long time. And it has. It is. And it has. The Torment. They are waiting, based on true events. So it's like a, a weird staircase with help me scratched in blood and a screaming face above it above the words so lock your doors and be afraid this is the cover not me Uh, when his best friend david appears on his doorstep in the middle of the night alex senses something is wrong seeing his friend's vulnerable state alex offers to let him stay but david hasn't come alone David has been troubled and disturbed by unimaginable things he cannot explain. And as the night progresses, he comes to the terrifying realisation that not only are they real, they are coming for him. Mmm. An ultimate thrill ride that's not for the faint-hearted. 2009. Uh, Giles Anderson. Francesca Fowler. Nicholas Shaw and Zoe Richards, never heard of any of them. Written by Andrew Cole, never heard of him. Directed by Andrew Cole and Stephen Isles, don't know who they are. But that doesn't mean it's not going to be a very good film. You never know. Sometimes these little obscure films catch you out. So it's a horror, but it is a 15 rated. So hopefully more psychological than gore. I prefer that type of horror, if I'm honest. So, I don't know what to expect. Quite interested to watch this. So, let me stick this in. We'll have a watch, and then I'll come back, and we'll discuss The Torment. Mm Mm-hmm. The Torment. Short and sweet. Uh, It was actually a UK film, which surprised me. Um, I don't know why. Yeah, a little short horror. It's only uh, 90 minutes, well, 82 minutes, so, yeah, nice and short. Uh, it's quite low budget, but I thought it was really interesting. I thought it was really well made. At first, I was like, oh, what's this going to be like? It's like handheld camera. You see uh, Kate and Alex are the two main characters, played by Francesca Fowler and Nicholas Shaw. And they are in their apartment, and then they get a visit from their friend David, as it said. I read that earlier on the cover but he comes around he's had a breakup with his missus and seems he seems all right he seems to be bearing up with it like and then kate and alex go to bed and they leave david alone and he goes into the bathroom and then you start hearing knocking and comes this sort of ghostly sort of supernatural thing then he's really like freaked out as if summit's following him and you spend the night with him looking about trying to keep things out yeah it's first is they're like kate and alex before david comes around they're setting up the computers or they're setting up webcams to film around the house in case it's burgers and i was thinking like oh it's going to be another 
paranormal activity, but it wasn't. It's it was completely sort of not what I expected. This film at every turn, you know, not firstly because it was a UK film, and sort of secondly because it's a horror. But at the same time, you're watching it, thinking, "Is this real, or is this just in David's head? He's paranoid. It's like he's almost dealing with like some sort of episodes." And, like, you only ever see the creatures from his point of view. So it really puts it to you, like, is it, is it just him? Is he, like, schizophrenic or something? But as I said, it's like handheld cameras, and there's a lot of filming from people's point of view, the three main characters. And, I mean, it may, it, the, the film is just set in their apartment and it's for the most time it's like just the fear of them there is another character comes into it a uh, pregnant girl from upstairs and they do go you know david goes into her flat for a time and there's a real harrowing scene in there and really well shot and you know without sort of giving too much away i mean i looked this film up because i thought i'd never heard of it it's been on my shelf for like it must be it must be like 12 years i must have had this one on my shelf and someone I think lent it to me and never picked it up or bought it around. You know, I can't even remember who gave it to me. I've had it that long. Um, never watched it. And now I'm thinking, you know, it's actually quite a good film. And I thought, oh, I wonder if other people, you know, I wonder what's, if this has been reviewed and, you know, what the general consensus is, because I really enjoyed it. And I looked it up and there was another torment film called the torment of the same year. And it, really got shit marks and at first i was thinking it was the same one and then i read about it and it's like oh no that's not the same film and then i found out that this was re-released in 2010 as the possession of david o'reilly and so they must have re-released it that was 2010 um as a different name but you can see like the performances i thought were really great the three main characters uh i mean alex the main guy whose house it is nicholas shaw now, I really recognised him. I think I've seen him in TV. He was all right, but, I mean, the bloke, the main actor who plays David, Giles Alderson, he was really good. As this tormented character, you're really like, you're on the edge of your seat watching him freaking out around his house. And then, because he's freaking out, it puts Alex and Kate on an edge as well and then Alex is sort of drawn into it and Kate's always like dubious and like well you know does he just need help what did you see because Alex is sure he's seen something and there's all these mysterious questions but it's really well I don't know it really the direction really evokes tension really draws it out it's simple shots there's no elaborate setup but there's just like David keeps wanting the lights off because he says they can see us in the light and it makes it scarier and the shots are more obscure and you can't see what's going on and it's from their point of view and you just see like hands rummaging around walls and stuff but yeah there's some really good scenes in it like the sleepwalking scene or you you see Kate she's asleep and she sort of stirs and it's her point of view and you just see her looking at her husband and then you sort of know things are going to happen. You can see what's coming, but she looks over and David is like stood over her bed and she freaks out and like, oh, he's sleepwalking, he's sleepwalking. And then Alex is trying to coax him out of the room and then he freaks out and that's when they're sort of drawn into the story. But at no point in this film did it 
was I sort of like, oh, this is boring now. You know, this is going on. With a lot of horrors, they get silly towards the end. And this one felt at one point, I was like, oh, it's going to get silly. Because you see these sort of gory monsters and that trying to come in around the door at one point. But it doesn't reveal too much. It's always sort of glimpses of things. And that's what I love about it. Because it's, you see little bits and sort of less is more with this sort of film to me, you know. And I said I didn't, if it was a horror, I wanted it to be more psychological than gore. And it was, and it's like you're trying to work out, is this happening? And there's a bit of a twist with one of the characters halfway through. And that's quite gory and harrowing what happens there. Yeah, some really dark shots and just this horrific reveal. I mean, this I was like that. I spent the whole time thinking, I couldn't understand if Kate and Alex could see it or not, or if they were just panicked. And then it's like, you start to get the impression that, yeah, it's, it's Alex more than Kate. And you're on edge because they're just walking around, or David's walking around the whole film with this knife, waving this knife around. And you're thinking... He is not stable, you know. Get him out of this house. Get some help. Yeah, it's really, I don't know. I really enjoyed it. It's different. There's a few bits in there where you can sort of tell it's a low-budget film. There's a corny bit where his phone's ringing and he looks at his phone and it just says, battery dying. But they sort of created this screen to look like a phone screen with the light in there saying battery dying. Because you could tell, because even though it's saying battery dying, you've got... The symbol up in the top corner is a full battery. That's, but the soundscape was really good. It wasn't too much. You know, it was a good accompaniment. It didn't lead you. It didn't ruin surprises. There was like one or two jump scares in here, but not really. It's not really like that sort of horror. But yeah, I don't know. It's like this close handheld camera work with like lingered on things. And yeah, really intriguing, really interesting and different. And... It was short and it was low budget and it was effective on its budget. Yeah, and I don't know what the directors and the writers done before, Andrew Cole and Steve Isles, but yeah, I thought it was quite a masterful little film. I really enjoyed it. So there you go, another film done. First horror film I've watched for quite a while actually, but yeah, it was good. Anyway, let's see what I've got next. Next. Okay then. Fourth and final film of this month's movies that I own, but I haven't watched yet. I've got my box. I'm opening it. I'm taking out a bit of paper, having a rummage. Got one. See what this is. I Love You, Philip Morris. Is this a Jim Carrey film? I've got a feeling this is a Jim Carrey film. Bit of a comedy. Is it? Jim Carrey and Matt Damon or someone like that. Let me see if I can find it. Found it. Yeah, Jim Carrey. Ah, Ewan McGregor. Right. From the creators of Bad Santa. Outrageously funny. News of the world. Mm. Non-stop laughs. Daily Mirror. Mm -hmm. Yeah, always go to the News of the World and the Daily Mirror for my uh, film reviews. And hilarious, in style. Never heard of in style. The true story of a legendary con artist. I love you, Philip Morris, from the creators of Bad Santa. So, this is quite a bit different. We've had quite a variety this month, haven't we? So, from the creators of Bad Santa, 
comes the improbable and hilarious true story of a charismatic con man's journey from small-town businessman to flamboyant white-collar criminal, starring Jim Carrey and Ewan McGregor. I Love You, Philip Morris is the critically acclaimed oddball tale of what can happen when the legal system, a daredevil spirit and undying love collide. Written and directed by John Radua and Glenn Fekara. I think that says can't read the writing you know it's that sort of so yeah the cover is jim carrey stood with a bottle of champagne and some flowers lots of sort of ids different ids fake ids by the looks of it and then a picture of a polaroid picture of ewan mcgregor smiling with blonde hair so yeah i'm going to take a look at this one then i'll come back discuss it and then I'll tell you what is my film of the month out of these four movies. All right. So, yeah. See you soon. Cheers. OK, so I love you, Philip Morris. 2009. Just watched it. Uh, what can I say? Uh, it's quite it's one of those stories that is so incredible. It's almost unbelievable. You know, the sort of film that if you made the story up, People would say it was far-fetched, it wouldn't happen. But because it's true, it's one of those stories that you just... It just it's amazing that it happened. And do you know what I mean? You, could, you wouldn't believe it if it wasn't true. And it's hard to believe when it is true. But basically, Jim Carrey plays Stephen Russell. And he's a sort of a, a homosexual con man who, whilst in jail, he meets Ewan McGregor. Uh, and he falls in love with him. And sort of devotes his life to sort to look after and protect him, you know, Ewan McGregor. But he can't stop being the con artist. And he goes to all these extreme lengths to make this life for the pair of them, which is both incredible and sort of often hilarious. So that's the plot. But I really like the way the story was set out. It's sort of tongue-in-cheek obviously got Jim Carrey playing the main guy and he's playing it for laughs I mean it is a funny story but it's a comedy drama but perhaps Jim Carrey is too sort of zany for this you know you just don't believe that Jim Carrey is the character Stephen Russell and whilst Jim Carrey is is playing a homosexual he's it's not heartfelt you know it's almost as if oh, this would be really funny if I played this homosexual character. You know, and even like the reveal at the beginning of how he's to tell us he's homosexual, it's quite a vulgar moment. It's done for laughs. So although they're not laughing at homosexuals, yeah, they kind of are. I, I don't know. It's a, it's a bit It's a bit of a strange one. Um, and Ewan McGregor is sort of like the, the feminine one of the two. And although his performance is a little bit more realistic, it does sort of, I I always feel this. I always think why, you know, it's like another feather in the cap, isn't it? For actors to play homosexual characters. And maybe the studios see it as some sort of appeal. People aren't going to watch it if it's real homosexuals in the roles, perhaps. Um, so they give it to two actors that can draw in sort of straight crowds i don't know so it's easy watching it is funny 
but what does the film justice, I think, is the way that the story is told. So it's based on a true story. It's based on a, a book called I Love You, Philip Morris, A True Story of Life, Love and Prison Breaks by Steve McVicker. But I like the way that it sets up the characters or the Jim Carrey character at the beginning. You find out that he's living this false life from the start. He's never really knows who he is. And you see him as a child and his parents call him in. They got something to tell him and you see his brother stood behind. And before the parents can break it to him gently, the brother goes, you're adopted. Just sort of blurts it out, you know, um, and then you go a few years later and you see Jim Carrey is a cop. He's got a wife and a daughter. Um, and then you find out that he's become a cop just for the sole purpose of tracking down his mum. But that gets broken to you. I mean, the intro is quite quick, fast-paced editing. But this is just a perfect example of how this film sort of pans out. It plays out the intro. You see he's a cop and then you see that he's used, he's sort of that, forward thinking that he knows that if he becomes a cop he can use that to track down his mother and then as soon as he finds her he quits being a cop he's got no interest in being a policeman but then at this point then it turns the story on its head again and you find out that he's gay and it's always these little truths that are hidden in the way the story is told it always sets something up but misses out a massive piece of information which then comes back later and says oh actually this is really what's going on and yeah i just really liked that i love that sort of style it's a bit similar to the man on the moon isn't it where you got jim carrey plays andy kaufman it's one of my favorite films it's a similar sort of role similar sort of story what we see on the screen isn't the, the whole story and i love the way it keeps flipping and turning i really enjoyed that I mean, it goes through the story and you see Jim Carrey. He's married, but he's a closet homosexual. And then one day, one day when he has a car crash, he realises he can't live like that anymore. So he just tells his wife that he's gay. And from that moment on, that's his sort of epiphany moment where he's going to live his gay life. But his gay lifestyle is expensive and that's what leads him to becoming a con man he's always looking for the money and then he gets arrested for being a con man ends up in jail and you sort of see his character being introduced into jail and really scared and everyone's looking and then when he walks into the cell you realize oh you're not actually following Jim Carrey Jim Carrey's there he's already established himself in prison you're following someone else in and then Jim Carrey shows him around and Basically, because he's homosexual, he's he's settled into the jail and he can use, you know, sexual favours with the other inmates to get things that he wants. And he's living this life of Riley. It's, it's a bit weird as well. When he first meets Ewan McGregor, the weirdest part in this film was the scene where they're slow dancing and smooching in the prison cell. Uh, just at the moment that my eldest son walks in the room and is like, what are you watching? <laughs> it's like, oh, nothing, nothing. It's just a Jim Carrey film. It's comedy. It's comedy. True story. Uh, <laughs> that was a bit awkward, but uh, just there's some really great bits in this because when he gets, you know, the con, the lengths he goes to, he researches the law and he's got this intuitive sort of mind and he fakes being a lawyer and he cons his way through life and he gets out of jail and then he gets Philip Morris, Ewan McGregor's character out of jail. And then he gets this job 
and that seems to be going really well but then there's a con involved there but there's some great sequences where he tells a joke to the receptionists and you see this joke going all around and he keeps hearing other people telling this joke but every time they're getting it wrong and and he's just sort of bored and frustrated there there's some great ways of getting things like that across you know and then uh, another great sequence towards the end is where he's it shows all his wily attempts to escape the prison uh using just various sort of fraudulent documents and schemes and dyeing his clothes so he looks like the surgeons and that at the, the hospital in the infirmary it's really great there's some great stuff but yeah it's really well produced really clever editing swift pace is light-hearted and fun um but yeah i just think jim carrey i don't know they've chose him for a reason i suppose to get it through but it could have been a slightly more effective film if it was a more effective actor but then i don't know it's what they're going for isn't it it was all right it was good fun um but would I say it was my film of the month? Let's have a look back what I've watched. So film number one was Mad Max, which, you know, I'm glad I watched it. It was quite clever for its time. It's quite ingenious, sort of some of the filming and some of the chases and what have you. Um, but it's not really my sort of thing. I'm not much of a motorhead. I found it a bit too sort of not violence i don't mind violence but i don't know a bit too bleak and a bit a bit sort of vulgar in a way um the next film 21 it was good fun but it sort of hit all the marks at the right places you know you could see where it was going and what was happening it was nothing new there uh the torment i think i didn't know what to expect going in and it was a low budget little british film and i thought at the end of that i thought I really enjoyed that a lot more than I thought I was going to. And it was quite good trying to work out if it was real or if it was, if it was all psychological, um, how far, you know, I don't know. Really, yeah, I quite enjoyed that. And then Philip Morris, as I said, was good fun, a bit tongue in cheek. But yeah, I think my film of the month this month is going to be The Torment, which, yeah, a little low budget, but really enjoyed it. So anyway, that's it for another month of films that I own that I haven't watched yet. Excuse my um, croaky voice. I am just getting over COVID. I've spent this last sort of four or five days isolating. Um, there might not be a podcast between me and my brother. He's had COVID. And then just as he's getting over it, I've got it. So we haven't met up. We didn't get it off each other. It's just kids back at school, isn't it? Things just passing around so yeah we're behind with the pod at the moment but had covid so yeah there we go another film that i own that i haven't watched yet thank you for listening and uh yeah i will be back for more of these films that i own that i haven't watched yet next month so all the best and i'll see you all again soon cheers Thank